G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Coming up today on The Story. So I get this knock on my door from one of our medical staff and he says, oh, he knocks on my door and he says, Madame, we've got a problem. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then he says, the boys want to run away. <laughs> so I'm thinking, OK, God, I'm up here in the middle of northern Uganda. I'm in a culture that's not my own culture and the boys want to run away. So what on earth can I do? The Story. The story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, you never know where the road of life will take you. And for Marita Simpson, it has taken her from the east side of Melbourne to a remote area in Uganda. How did she get there and what is she doing? We'll find out today as she shares her story with Eric Scadabo in our Melbourne studios. Marita Simpson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Glad to have you with us, and so let's get right to your journey. Go all the way back to where it started, right here on the east side of Melbourne. Well, I grew up in a very strong Christian family, so I've always had uh, those kind of influences around me. My grandmother was a particularly good influence. She was always having uh, missionary newsletters and missionary stories and that kind of thing throughout her home. So whenever I used to visit, we used to look at the newsletters and things. Um, My parents had a lot of biographies and things lying around. So I used to read biographies. So I guess my interest in overseas things and and some of the more exotic overseas places has always been um, fed from when I was a young child. I've also always enjoyed traveling as well. So that's been a pretty big influence. Did a couple of short-term missions trips when I was in high school, early university years, and that fed my passion as well, I think. So did you always have an interest in other cultures? I I think so. Yes. Yes. So just, just, well, just from reading about them and that kind of thing. Yeah. And you were raised in a Christian family. Did you rebel or were you always a good kid? <laughs> no, I was, truth, I, was a pretty, I was a pretty straight, hardworking, want to please my parents kind of a kid. So, yeah. And with a strong Christian faith? Yes, yeah. I grew up as a Christian, was born into a Christian household, so I've never known anything different. And it's always been, always been a pillar in my life. And eventually you wanted to become a missionary yourself? Uh, yes, I did. I, th- I think I've always, always in the back of my mind, I probably have wanted to do that. Probably more after I'd finished university and, and was exploring a bit more what I wanted to do with life. I kind of was more pointed in that direction, but yes. Okay, yeah. so you became a teacher? I became a teacher, did teaching after university. Then I also did a year in Bible college, which was which was influential. And then I... Um, because of my grandma's influence, I knew about Wycliffe Bible Translators and Summer Institute of Linguistics. And uh, one of their courses was teaching people overseas to read and write in their mother tongue, but using the Bible as the foundation, oh, okay. foundational literacy material. And that, that really um, spoke to me. So I ended up doing a year's training with Wycliffe Bible Translators as a literacy worker. And eventually you became a homeschool teacher? Yeah, a couple of the... I I found out when I was in Wycliffe that I wasn't really a language adept kind of a person. It's not uh, for everybody. (laughs) No, definitely not for me. (laughs) But uh, 
couple of families that I that I did training with were going to work in Uganda. So one was working in Kampala and one was working in Belisa, which is where I am now in in northern Uganda. You're getting ahead of the story here. <laughs> so, so they uh, so they asked me to come over into homeschool, and so I ended up doing six weeks with one family and then six weeks with the other family. That was my introduction to Africa and to Uganda. Any challenges? Any cultural shocks? I think, uh, well, the biggest challenge in those years was when I was working, doing my six weeks in in northern Uganda in in Belisa district. Uh, There was no telecommunications at that stage. So I I would be going, what, five to six weeks with no communication at all with anybody outside apart Mm. from the family that I was homeschooling. And so I, I used to find that after about four weeks, I was really, it was really beginning to stress me a bit. And, and then I really, really missed the contact from home. So that that, that was a big challenge. So although I, I really, really loved working in northern Uganda, it was also hard in that we had no outside contact. Different nowadays, of course, but... Uh, yeah, so that that was a challenge. So now internet is uh, more pervasive. Yep. So internet where we are, it's great. It works not not as fast as your high speed networks over mm. here, but fast enough to write emails and to get on Facebook and to do FaceTime and so stuff. Just so just having that contact with the outside world made a big difference for your mental well being. Yeah, and def- definitely, you know, like people say to me, "Do I get lonely because I'm the only white person in our?" project in an in our area do i get lonely um that probably, would be a question i would have yeah. <laughs> so, so no not really um i mean i do i miss family and i miss the day-to-day contact but yeah. because of the internet i can have instant communication like i can send them an email and have an answer back within 10 minutes or if my family's around i can uh, get on the messenger or facetime and, and we can actually have if the network's good we can actually have a video conversation oh, and things so. that reminds me I posted on Facebook that I watched a movie about Uganda. Yep. And you said we just watched that movie last night. Yes. And that was while you were there. Yes. In the remote area yes. of Uganda. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, so, so. you're connected. Yeah, yeah. So we're connected. And, and yeah, so technology is not, not a huge problem. Um, it's a problem if the power goes out or the network goes off, but yeah. Okay. So, so you did the homeschooling of two different families mm-hmm. for a year, mm-hmm. and then you worked for a few other organizations? Yes. Yeah. And understand that there was some war activities while you were there? Yes. In my, uh, when I finished homeschooling, I always knew that I wanted to work with national children. And so um, I got involved with another organisation that was working in Kampala and in northern Uganda. And uh, they sent me up to northern Uganda to help oversee their project in their school in, uh, in a district in northern Uganda. And at that time, um, the Kony War, which was a civil war that was happening in the area, um, had died down a bit, so it was peaceful. But after I'd been up there, I think it was only about four months, all of a sudden the fighting broke out again. So that oh, was wow. a very interesting interesting experience and a very um, interesting time in my life. Now, you knew when you went there that there was a possibility that the war could start up again? Well, we knew it had been going on, but it had actually been quiet, well, quiet for about three or four years. Um, but then what happened is, for I'm not quite sure of the reasons, but it just suddenly flared up again. And, and I remember quite clearly one day we were up there and we saw some smoke coming from just up the road. And it turned out that um, 
the Coney's, some of Coney's soldiers has actually, had actually bombed a car that was travelling with a number of passengers, a ute, had actually bombed this ute and killed, I think it was about 12 passengers, killed oh, them. Oh, wow. So that, that literally happened about a kilometre up the road and that, that was the start of the renewal of the uh, fighting and the the bad situation that was happening up there at the time, yeah. Were you afraid? Um, I wasn't because I... And I believe it was God. I always felt like I was in a bubble of protection, if I can explain it like that. So although all of this stuff was happening around me and we had fighting happening at night time and things, where I was living, I was in a, in a room that was between two containers and concreted in, and we also had soldiers guarding outside the door. So oh, okay. personally, I was safe, but this was happening around us. I wasn't allowed to travel, of course, mm. um, but it was certainly impacting impacting our staff and students and impacting the people and the around boys us. yeah um had had this occasion one night now what happens is because of the way that uh coney used to come along and or coney's soldiers used to come along they would abduct the boys and make them in to train them into be child soldiers or just kill them or they would oh, come wow. along and uh come along and set fire to the huts and that kind of thing our, our boys were very very afraid and uh what they used to do was run into the bush and hide into the bush at night time or hide up in the trees. And uh, so one, one night after I'd, the, after it had just started again and I was up at this project and I was the one that was responsible, so I was the leader, um, I get this knock on – everybody had to be in their beds by 7 o'clock because of the rebel activity and things. So I get this knock on my door from one of our medical staff and he says – oh, he knocks on my door and he says, Madame, we've got a problem. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, and then he says, the boys want to run away. So I'm thinking, okay, God, I'm up here in the middle of northern Uganda. I'm in a culture that's not my own culture, and the boys want to run away. So what on and earth? And who could blame them based yeah, on well, everything who could blame you just them? said? Yeah. So what on earth can I do? So anyway, I rem- remember that particular night I, had, um, I went over to talk to them, and I actually had Psalm 91, which is about the angels and camping around us. So we actually read through Psalm 91, and that night they went back to bed, and, and they were quite peaceful. So that was quite a fascinating experience. A bit further down the track than they did actually used to take off, but by then I had to go back to Kampala anyway, so. Wow. And, yeah. and did that whole situation eventually settle down? Uh, it did. Um, probably about, uh, when was it, about 2007, 2008, I think it kind of resolved itself, so it's been peaceful, pretty peaceful ever since, so. Yeah. Okay. And then you eventually came back to Melbourne Came back to Melbourne. Um, I always knew that I wanted to work back in Belisa, my original district where I started homeschooling, but work with the national children. So my heart has always been, I think because it was the first place that I'd visited in Uganda, that's why mm-hmm. That's why it was on my heart. Um, you know, people say, why on earth Belisa? Um, no reason except that I think that's where God directed me. It's a very poor area. Very poor area, very dusty, very scrubby, very... Uh, very remote but that's but where my heart's there. <laughs> so, yes yeah. so yes yeah. so um so knowing that i wanted to come back and work with national children um i thought i need to upgrade my education so i came back and actually did a master's in early childhood because i wanted to start a start a nursery school and to me that seemed like um the next best step to get that qualification which is what i did now so. for most of us just living and working and doing ministry in a foreign country yeah. or a developing country is challenge enough. Yes. You decided to take it the next level up and actually start your own ministry. Yes. Yeah. By yourself. 
Yes, well, well, kind of by myself, but I've always had people who were interested in what I was doing and, and kind of support supporting you. me. Yes, so back here in Australia, when I said that I would like to go back and start my own start my own work in Belisa with, with national children, um, church has been fantastic. Um, Pastor Graham has been very supportive. And I had a team from of friends, really friends from church who've always been interested in my overseas work who formed our first board. And then over in Uganda, um, a couple of people that I used to work with in Uganda in other organisations joined and we made our first board in Uganda and they're still with us and they've always been incredibly supportive. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with Marita Simpson and we're finding out how she came to be a missionary in Africa and start her own ministry. Marita is the founder and director of Amari, an organisation that provides Christian education for orphaned and vulnerable children in a remote area of Uganda. Next, we'll hear about some of the challenges Marita faced as a single lady starting a ministry in that society. Also, we'll learn how she came to adopt her Ugandan son. That and more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with Marita Simpson, the founder and director of Amari, a Christian school for orphaned and vulnerable children located in northwestern Uganda. Before the break, we heard how Marita's love for teaching and travel led her overseas and to starting her own ministry. Next, Marita shares some of the challenges she faces as a single lady leading a ministry in Ugandan society. Now, starting an organization that ministers to and educates orphaned and vulnerable children, that's challenging anywhere. But in Uganda, there are some unique challenges. Is that right? Yes, um, particularly where we're working, because what's happened is um, oil was discovered only about 10, 12 years ago. So that's creating a lot of different uh, issues to do. Now, with that the- would be really ironic if yeah. you happened to buy a property for a school, a Christian school, and then found out there was oil underneath yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been assured that they won't be digging oh, okay. near, near the school. You don't want so to find it. No, no thank <laughs> that you, could no. cause problems. Yes. So that that's created some issues. And then uh, also because it's a what's traditionally a communal land area, so people don't individually own the land. So you bought some property, Mm. and then you found out afterwards what you did was wrong. Yes. Well, we actually bought the property from the neighbours, so we negotiated with the neighbours, who's what are known as a sitting family. So yes, they have some claims to the land, but as well as dealing with the sitting family, we should have also been dealing on a community level that we didn't know about at the time. So you don't just get... The property from the people who own no it. no you have to and get it from the community as well from the community so has what to did get that their approval. Like? Um, so what that meant was because we had made the mistake the first time, we were actually able to negotiate with our community leaders that we had some money that we set aside that we were going to put into other community projects like um, helping repairs in a couple of local. Oh wait a second! Schools. You're not just letting them know; you're paying them. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we have to pay them. So there's a lot of hands out here. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so we fortunately, by the grace of God, we managed to smooth that over with the community for the first 10 acres. And then the community and the sitting families actually offered us an adjacent 30 acres as well. Oh, wow. But to so, – so they're happy with us, but to do it that time, we had to do it the proper way. So that means we had to get approval from all of the family, which was 15 members, and then we also had to get approval from the community, and that involved uh, a meeting of about a thousand people, and then it came down to two hundred people. I think it was about a thousand had to be involved in or, just to buy this well, chunk of land because it was the community land and the, the number of villages around had to give approval. So that was had to be you know radio announcements, and then there was a, another meeting, and then it came down to two hundred of the village leaders, and then it came down to the village fifteen of the village. Mm-hmm. Um, elected yeah. leadership had to had to sign off on their approval, so we had to go through this whole level of community approval to go ahead and purchase the yeah. land. So. Well, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, this was going to have an impact on the community. Yes, yeah. So it makes sense that the community yeah. would have some say. So yes, yeah, and, and definitely because this- we're working in a communal community-focused society, um, that also plays out, of course, too. So, And, and we were, we're a kind of a unique group. There's no other organisations doing what we're doing in Belisa, so it was new. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people and a lot of government officials didn't believe that we were going to do what we said we were going to do because there's been a lot of uh, issues where people come in and grab land and say that they're going to do something and then don't, don't actually do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so we're kind of fighting against those perceptions yeah, as well. Yeah. So. so what... Is it exactly that you do? Okay, so we have uh, we have a nursery school and a primary school. Nursery is the equivalent of the Australian kindergarten. So our children come in at kindergarten level, and we're currently up to P six. So next year we'll go P seven, and we just add a year each year. And how do you get your students? Uh, students come from our local community, from our surrounding villages. We're not boarding, so they have to be local children. Uh, usually it's word of mouth. We've got a couple of social workers who come from the community, so they will know the children. Um, people will come to us and say, there's a widow, you know, there's a widow up the road and she's doing it really tough because her husband's just passed away and she's trying to educate six children and that kind of thing. So we'll get word of mouth or people will come to us and ask, can they have the children in the school? In which case we'll take their details and then we'll investigate further um, as to whether we need to take them. So the need you felt that was there was to help out orphans or people who... Well, well, my heart was to help vulnerable children, so mm-hmm. orphaned and vulnerable children. But then what you find is when you're living in the community, really the whole community is, is vulnerable because of the intense levels of poverty. Um, AIDS is still a very big problem. Yeah. And so... The students come to you, a yep. variety of them. Yep. So they come to us and our core focus is to educate them. So we're, we're not an orphanage. So they'll come to us. We'll, we'll give them, we teach them, we give them uniforms, provide the teaching, provide lunch, provide extra basic medical support, extra medical support if there's bigger medical issues. Do a bit of community work with the families, helping the families. Or if the families are in crisis, then we'll do a bit of crisis care as well. Now, obviously, your heart is for helping them. Yeah. It's, a, it's a Christian school. Yes. You do teach the Bible. And yes, yeah, definitely. About faith yeah. in God. Yes, yes. And, and our heart is to produce a generation of children that, that know God, not just know God, but really know God. Yeah. But, of course, the challenge is you're in this culture that you're learning about. Yes. You want to help, but there's potential that you could unknowingly and naively and well 
well, meaningly, if that's a word, uh, you know, step on toes. Do you ever wonder about that kind of thing? Uh, yes, and certainly I do step on toes. Um, You're a toe stepper, in my, are you? <laughs> in my early days, I did it oh, a lot more than us. I do now. But I've, I've learned. What, what have you learned? Tell us something. What have I learned? Uh, you know, well, in the early days, you've got visions of how things could be done and should be done, and you march in there and, you know. <laughs> this is the way it's going to be. Yeah, this is the way it's going to be. And But then I realised, well, I'm dealing with a community-focused society and the men are the ones who run the society and the men are the elders. And what do they think of you? You're, well, you're leading this whole thing. Yeah, a little bit different for me because I'm, I'm white and I'm educated, so I've already got, hmm. I'm already up a top level in terms of how status I'm seen. Status-wise, yes. But I am a female. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what I've learnt is now if I want things done, um, I'll often go to my Ugandan counterparts or my directors who are male or, or uh, that kind of thing and I will work you know, this is what I want done. Can we, can you do it and do it? And I've learned I've had to step back and let them handle the negotiations or handle dealing with the politicians or handle dealing with the community elders. So, well, which is good because that's yeah. one less thing you have to worry about. You well, can just that's go right. get back to teaching. And, you know, not. Uh, a lot of stuff goes on that I would probably be horrified about, but because I don't know it's happening or I don't, don't know they're talking that way, well, then I don't have to worry about it. So. <laughs> well, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's been an interesting interesting learning curve. Yeah. And so the school has been going since 2010? <laughs> yes. Yep. So 2010, 2011, and then uh, this year we're up to P6. Next year we'll be P7, and then we have to start boarding, which will be another set of challenges. And overall, do you think? You're having a positive impact on that area. Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. We've um, we are because we're doing what we said we would do. People are pleased. Um, the other thing is we've also focused heavily on teaching mother tongue in the early years, and we're we're really pioneering that. Yeah, what is the language? In it's that area? called Lugungu. So it's the Bagungu people Lugungu language. So. Wycliffe Bible Translators has recently just translated the New Testament that was dedicated last year. But our children are learning to read and write in Lugungu before they transition to English. So we're, we're pioneering that and people are seeing oh, that, okay. yes, we're doing it successfully. And, and because Lugungu is part of their culture, they're, they're happy from a cultural point of view as well as an educational point of view. Do you speak Lugungu? <laughs> very, very, very badly and very limited. Oh. <laughs> Much, much oh, that's right. You people. said language wasn't yeah, really I know. your, your much strong. Much to my people's disgust, but uh, yeah. Okay, so the school is going well mm. now. On a personal level, you felt in your heart the Lord leading you to adopt. I, I'd always thought that I would like to adopt, but I also felt very clearly that I wasn't just to walk into an orphanage. And Uganda has lots of orphanages. Walk into an orphanage and and pick a child and come away with a child. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I didn't believe that was for me. So I said to God, if you want me to have a child, you have to make it very, very definite that this is the child for me. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got my child. Yeah. You will tell us the story. Uh, my, I had some Australian friends working in Kampala who uh, run a medical ministry. And one of their ministries was in the outskirts of Kampala. And one of their workers came across a family that... Uh, had a little child who was a, a nephew to the family, but he was being raised in a very, very poor family and, and the aunt wasn't very happy that he was living with them because she had so many other mouths to feed and that kind of thing. Mm. He'd lost his father to AIDS a bit earlier and uh, was now living with his uncle. And he, he was uh, 
pretty skeletal when they found him and probably wouldn't have lasted very long. And so my friends said, can they take this little child into care to look after him? And the family agreed and the clan agreed. And so uh, he came to stay with my friends. And at that time, I, I met him when he first came into the first came to stay with my friends. Um, and at that time, I very flippantly said to my Australian friend, well, if nobody wants to look after him, I'll have him, you know, as you do. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, at that stage, there was a lovely Ugandan lady who said, no, she'd had a vision that God had given her another child to look after. And so he went to live with her and she raised him for about six months while he got well and all of that kind of thing. But then in February, about six months later, I got a phone call from my Australian friend and she said, well, you know how you said back in August that you would have him if nobody wants him? Well, Mama Annette can't look after him because of her own medical reasons. Would you like to take him? He said, now, no pressure, but if you would like to have a think about it and come back to me. So... And so, of course, I um, I couldn't say no, of course, and now mm. he's mine. So. And did he steal your heart? Yes, he did. He did. He did. And, you know, the older he gets, the more I love him. So, yeah. And how old is he now? He's seven, turning eight this year. So I've had him for about six years. That was missionary Marita Simpson chatting with Eric Scadabo about the amazing work she's doing in Uganda. But that's not the end of the story. There's much more to it. So we invite you to join us again next time for part two of the conversation with Marita, the founder and director of Amari, a Christian school for orphaned and vulnerable children. Next time, we'll find out about how the number of children living in her house is growing, or I should say in her huts. And also we'll find out about the cultural challenges she's faced. And finally, she'll reflect on the whole experience of being a single lady in a remote area of Uganda and starting and directing a ministry. Meanwhile, you can learn more about Amari by visiting their website, www.amari.org.au. That's Amari, A-M-A-R-I, .org.au. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. You go in and you've got these visions of having a fabulous school and perfect kids, but you, you know, you realise that life is not like that. One of the funny things over there is with the builders, they're great at building, but they never finish anything off properly. So my vision of all these beautiful buildings, you know, with properly finished (laughs) everything, in the end it's kind of like, well, if the doors are hanging and the hinges are not falling off, well, we're doing pretty good. (laughs) Once again, missionary Marita Simpson will share her amazing story and how she began a school in a remote area of Uganda helping orphaned and vulnerable children. We'll find out more about the challenges she's faced as a single lady leading a ministry in that society next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.